0: Hi, are you someone who has difficulty dealing with your patients who are complaining about pain? Difficulty either because they complain about pain and you're frustrated because you don't have the right answer, or perhaps they complain about pain and they might be taking advantage of you and you're not sure. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. David Lavarski. Dr. Lebarski is the CMO of the University of Miami Health System. He's also chair of the Department of Anesthesiology and the right person to talk to when we're talking about this type of an issue. So first of all, Dr. Labarski, thank you. I know your time is valuable, and I appreciate your joining us on the program.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to sharing some of my insights on the subject.
0: Maybe the first question would be, I mean, all of us have been there, whether we're specialists or not. Somebody comes in there complaining about pain. Our first initiative is we want to help them. I mean, that's what we do. We're doctors. How do you know, or what are some of the tips, first of all, if someone really doesn't have legitimate pain and they might be trying to take advantage of it, how do you pick that out?
1: It's not easy, right? That's why it's such a troubling dilemma for uh, so many physicians. Pain is a common, probably the most common, presenting complaint uh, when you visit uh, any physician. So you really have to know a little bit about um, what to expect um, in a particular disease state that might cause pain, and you have to quiz the patient, and you have to have a legitimate sense of, I hate to say a little bit of cynicism these days, but you do. Um Obviously, if someone's just coming in and you know the patient for a long time and they have a legitimate complaint, you know, there's not really anything to do. If, on the other hand, you have someone with ever escalating
0: requests for additional pain medicine, um, that's a different story and probably requires a slightly different approach. So, when somebody first comes in, I, I know in some practices people start out with a pain contract or they may say we don't prescribe pain medicine on the first visit. What do you think about those approaches? I think
1: that. Careful attention to prescribing habits are a good idea. Um, you know, again, I, I hate to have blanket rules about how to deal with patients, but very often there are alternatives to prescribing a narcotic as a first-line drug. As a matter of fact, um, most chronic pain uh, medicine physicians don't really love narcotics. Um, it's not that narcotics are not useful. They are, but they treat the symptom of pain. They don't really treat the cause of pain. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, basically, you can divide pain into two broad areas, either nociceptive or neuropathic. And nociceptive just simply means that there's some noxious stimuli somewhere, and it's You know, it's causing an irritation, and that irritation um, is being translated into an electrical signal that is traversing a peripheral nerve to the spinal cord um, and up to the brain where it's being perceived. And narcotics are pretty good for that type of problem they're not perfect, but they're pretty good because they mask that signaling. They interfere in a variety of different places, but most importantly, in a spinal interneuron that uh, down-regulates the signal for pain. Having said that, there are many other drugs that could, first of all, address the underlying cause of the problem. So, An example would be rheumatoid arthritis, where, again, having decreased inflammation and a healthy lifestyle and losing weight could also tend to decrease the noxious stimuli that's leading to pain. So there's a lot of management uh, efforts that rheumatologists will make in addition to just simply prescribing drugs. And narcotics aren't the only general anti-pain drug that exists. There are tons of uh, options out there, including non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. Narcotics tend to make patients feel good, though. So they they provide a uh, change in a patient's sensorium or perception of of their uh, surroundings. So they tend to be, um, when a patient gets used to taking whatever dose you've prescribed, they come back and they want more because they're getting a lot of secondary
0: gain from the fact that it's made them feel better. So when you do that, you get them almost sometimes into a cycle. You're trying to help them, but you may be hurting them. One of the things I've always said is if I have somebody come in with a headache, if I go to something like a strong narcotic, their headache may get better. But if I go to something like an acetaminophen or an ibuprofen, they may get better. And I'm more or less training them that something helps and nothing else does just by my mere action. And that that is a concern if you go to the big-time meds. Well, exactly. And so what you really want to do is figure out, is
1: there, you know, narcotics in general, like I said, they're they are addictive, they be, become habituated to them very easily, um, and um, because they, like I said, they do ha- have a pleasant sensorium sometimes associated with them, um, people interpret that as, oh, it made me feel better, and now… I've gotten used to that dose, I just need more. But in point of fact, they may just need a different type of medicine or a different approach to treating their problem, because again, narcotics are symptom treatments, not underlying mechanistic
0: treatment for what ails somebody. I like what you said about no hard and fast rules, because I think especially when it comes to pain, and maybe for many things in medicine, rules kind of paint you into a corner, and and what you said made a lot of sense. What are some of the things that you would turn to that are not the narcotic choices? Uh, You mentioned, for instance, the idea of of a good referral or or using a non-steroidal. What are some of those choices that may not be addictive but can help in pain?
1: Right, so there are many options out there now that are non-narcotic. Um, if you take a, the other type of pain is neuropathic pain, which sort of generates from uh, disordered discharge of of the nerve itself. And a classic example of that, that a lot of primary care physicians probably run into is shingles. And uh, for a drug like that, a drug like gabapentin, combined with a uh, lidocaine patch, so one is a local anesthetic, uh, one is a gabinergic agent, um, these are non-narcotics. They're not addictive. Um, they work better than narcotics. They're, you know, you have to be familiar with them. So CME and or just simply going to the internet will often uh, yield uh, important information that allows you to deal with uh, first-line approaches um, that does not include narcotics. And you know, again, anytime you can stay away from narcotics in general, it's probably a good idea. And there are so many uh, state prescribing laws that are very different. Across many different states. It's, it's, it's hard to even keep up with them. Uh, there's even a website on uh, Medscape that uh, actually in the anesthesiology section that lists all the different state laws around prescribing uh, narcotics. It's very, it's, a, it's very varied across the United States.
0: You're listening to Primary Care today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and today I'm speaking with Dr. David Labarsky. Dr. Labarsky is the chair of the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Miami Health System. He's also the chief medical officer. For a little break right here, what got you into the management side of things as a CMO? Do do you like that, or do you find yourself experiencing the pain of management and having to deal with that as well?
1: Yes. It often comes with a headache, I must admit that. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm also an MBA and have always been very interested in systems management. Uh, I published a large number of articles around uh, uh, operations management in the operating rooms uh, uh, and um, I've always been interested in that and taking that to a higher level at a uh, health system job. Uh, makes sense for me. Um, I really enjoy problem solving and, uh, you know, leveraging a simple solution out to many, many, many different places so that uh, patients will benefit from, uh, you know, from, from either better care, or higher quality processes, um, and foolproof delivery of medical care. And, you know, the higher, you know the, the higher up you go in an organization, the more opportunity you have to, to leverage what you know on behalf of a greater number of patients.
0: We'd have to have another interesting conversation another time talking about that because there is a lot of primary care physicians now who are stepping into some of the medical management roles and maybe combining both. I will skip to that maybe. What about the combining both aspect of this? I would think it's got to be exciting because it gives you a chance to be clinically involved as well as from an administrative standpoint.
1: Well, absolutely. The main focus of uh, my health system role is about coordinating safety and risk prevention and quality efforts across multiple facilities and, you know, a physician practice that is unparalleled in my opinion, we have 1,100 great physicians, but it's not that they don't need support um, from a variety of st- of structures that allow them to exercise their best judgments all the time in exactly the right environment, with exactly the right backup, and the ability to help provide that is uh, very, very rewarding. Um, it's, uh, as a matter of fact, most it's, there's a study out that has shown that the most successful health systems are almost always led by a physician executive, and that the physician executive uh, is, um, you know, brings a certain understanding of healthcare that, frankly, no one else can. There's a there's a level I don't know whether it's of dedication or, or altruism uh, or what is it of that drove someone in the beginning into the healthcare as a physician that serves them extremely well as a leader of a healthcare system.
0: And I do think staying involved, at least my personal feeling is staying involved clinically gives you that edge because you still have the same concerns. You might, for instance, be working in an EMR and go, oh, my gosh, I can't stand this platform because it doesn't do this or it doesn't do that. If you're away from it or you're not in that clinical world, you might say, gee, it's a great billing EMR, but you're not really thinking of the clinical side. And having that perspective at least probably gives you the opportunity It's just one example of making a decision that would work better for your docs. Exactly. Now, continuing a little bit about the pain issue, because I did want to go on to this, we have some elements and things we're going to do. What about when you have that pain seeker for the balance of the program? Somebody who comes in and they are, for whatever reason, seeking pain. And I don't think this is something where you say, just don't come to my office because they very well may be in trouble because of one of your colleagues encouraging this behavior. It isn't always a patient's fault. You don't know what the cause are. So what if you have somebody like that? How do you deal with them, again, if you're you're in a primary care office and you don't have a lot of the other resources uh, at your disposal?
1: Well, so this is a very difficult and very common scenario, and there's no easy answer. So first of all, the easiest thing to do is to just give the patient what they want. They say they need more drug. They look like a good person. You give them the drug, and unfortunately, you enable uh, dysfunctional behaviors um, in that regard um, for a variety of reasons. One, they may really need uh, treatment, and just giving them ever escalating doses of narcotics isn't exactly what they need. And by that, I mean um, the vast majority of, of chronic pain patients suffer um, some there's a there's a real change in how their nervous system works. And so when you have chronic pain, it becomes a um, hypersensitized system, and you also get relevant CNS effects, meaning either you have depression or anxiety, often attached to the chronic pain syndrome. So they may need an anti-anxiety drug, which would augment the pain drugs. They may need an antidepressant drug very commonly, which would... Um, which uh, a drug like, for instance, Cymbalta is actually indicated to help with chronic pain syndrome. Uh, I'd have no conflict of interest there. I'm just mentioning that as one of the uh, antidepressant drugs that have actually been studied in this regard. And so number one is you might want to really step back and start thinking about multimodal therapy, whether, you know, attacking either the neuropathic component or an inflammatory component, as well as a symptom masking component that the narcotics are. So that's the first thing. Take a step back. See if there isn't a different combination of drugs that might actually be a better therapy and address the underlying mechanisms first. The second thing I would do is try and find a chronic pain management specialist. They're not as common as they should be in the United States. I think we have a... uh, Uh, A deficit uh, in terms of the number of uh, fellowship-trained individuals who really are expert at getting patients onto a stable regimen. And a really good chronic pain medicine doctor, when they're faced with a patient like this, will figure out a way to readjust their medications, get their narcotics, if not off, at least on a much lower dose and a much more stable regimen, and then send them back to the primary care physician for maintenance therapy. Um, We've developed an excellent relationship with our own primary care physicians here at the University of Miami, where we do just that, where if they're, you know, we don't want to see every patient who has a complaint of pain because we would be overwhelmed. But when a primary care physician has someone who is has this escalating syndrome of constantly asking for more medicine, we really suggest that they send them in for a consult. And we just manage them for two or three visits. We get to know them, and we can usually get them on a stable regimen. The third class of patients are ones that you worry about are diverting drugs and um, it's hard to pinpoint that exactly which is why for patients who are on large amounts of narcotics very often that's where you begin to bring in contracts and where you do drug testing in the urine to make sure that the drugs that you're giving them are ending up in their body and they're not selling them on the street Um, and you have to see them more frequently and work more closely with them, Um, and they very often require psychological or psychiatric counseling because in those cases there's almost always some type of CNS component uh, going on as well and behavioral issues that need to be addressed.
0: Well, Dr. David Labarsky, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate the words of wisdom you shared with us, and again, thanks for taking time out of your schedule.
1: Um, Thank you very much for inviting me to speak on this incredibly important topic because so many physicians face
0: difficult pain treatment decisions. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash today to download the podcast and learn more on this series. Thank you very much for listening.